Everyone remembers 9-11, where they were, what they were doing. I was working in number 10 Downing Street. My job was to ensure that the government delivered its ambitious domestic policy priorities, reducing health waiting times, reducing crime, improving schools. That afternoon, I walked past the Prime Minister's office. He was surrounded by people offering advice and support. My instinct was to join the throng. Surely in a crisis, that's what you do. You offer to help the leader of your country. But the PM had plenty of people offering him advice. At that moment, it dawned on me that my job was to keep the show on the road. From then on, to ensure the government really changed things for the better, so the citizens would see and feel the difference, I focused relentlessly on those priorities. During that time in number 10, I realised there was a formula, a pattern to accomplishment, which divides failure from success and is about the way things get done. I've been thinking about that pattern ever since. I noticed the pattern in other fields too, in Britain's remarkable success in the Olympic and Paralympic Games, for example, in other elite sports, in art, in business and in science. I'm Michael Barber and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. Join me as I talk to a wide range of people whose accomplishments stand out. I want to hear their personal stories. I really want to know what they did and how they did it. What can we learn from their experience? Today, I'm talking to Helen Ziller, one of the most controversial figures in South African politics. She first came to prominence in the late 1970s. The first time I met her, I was really struck by what a powerhouse she is. Here was a woman not afraid to stand up for a vision, not afraid to speak out. Helen's the daughter of German Jews who emigrated to South Africa. Her parents escaped the Holocaust and arrived in a country that faced the horrors of apartheid. She was one of the leading journalists who exposed the cover-up of the death of black South African activist Steve Biko, who had in fact been murdered. As an active campaigner against apartheid, and later as a politician, her priority became building a capable state in South Africa, which she describes as the great moral issue of our time. Helen Ziller has not been afraid to push boundaries, and she says doing so can be provocative and controversial. In her words, someone has to be saying it, and she doesn't mind if it's her. My parents were refugees from Germany, and my father arrived in South Africa in 1934, my mother much later on than that. And they settled in South Africa, and then racial nationalism became the official policy in 1948. My parents were absolutely appalled to face it again. And from the moment that I first remember, my parents were campaigning against apartheid, paying quite a heavy price for it in various ways. And that was the milk that I grew up on. But I also came to understand how difficult it was to create a democracy in fact, my parents used to say it was a miracle that any countries were democracies, and they only became democracies that were functional and workable because a lot of people had sacrificed greatly and worked very hard to achieve that. And my mother particularly was a great Anglophile. 
she believed that Britain had really understood this concept of the rights of the individual and the state being there to protect the individual's rights, not the individual to serve the state. And of course, coming from Nazi Germany, that was an absolute uh, breath of freedom and fresh air. And so having grown up in that environment, I started working for that while I was a schoolgirl. I joined the Young Progressives under Helen Sussman. I went door to door trying to convince white people to vote for the end of apartheid, which was an interesting experience. I became a journalist and I was quite an activist journalist, strongly anti-apartheid in all things. I joined the front organizations of the banned African National Congress, and I did an enormous amount of work there and then continued during the transition and afterwards, and then particularly to build a viable opposition to a massive dominant ruling party. That's an amazing story. And when you were a journalist, you, by luck or judgment, I don't know, ended up working for one of the great newspaper editors of the second half of the 20th century anywhere in the world, Alastair Sparks. What was that experience like? Lots of people applied to the Rand Daily Mail because um, there were many young people coming out of universities that were anti-apartheid. And obviously the best place to work, especially if you wanted to be in journalism, was the Rand Daily Mail. I applied there. Ten of us got in. I was the only woman. I was very pleased at the time to have made it onto the course. And I did the cadet course and went on from there. My passion had always been politics. Alistair Sparks seemed to spot my talent for it. And he gave me some of the big stories to cover at a very young age. And he assigned me to the uh, the murder of Steve Biko. And um, that was, I think, the story that you're referring to, where we had to establish and prove beyond reasonable doubt that Steve Biko had been murdered and he did not die of a hunger strike as the state was trying to convey. And together with Alistair, we dug that story wide open, yes. That was just around the time I was leaving university. And so my generation remembers Steve Biko as a, a story and a cause celebre uh, and the eventual success of your investigation into his death. But for a younger generation, probably don't remember. He, he was a very controversial figure at the time, wasn't he? And a, a leader of the opposition to apartheid, a very visible leader? Well, he had been banned for quite a long time, and he was the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement, which was an alternative to the African National Congress. Steve Biko rejected the kind of non-racialism of the struggle and argued that, well, this essential and quintessential phrase that he's quite well known for is, black man, you are on, you are on your own, and he was uh, driving the quest for psychological liberation at that point. So that is what Steve Beaker became best known for. You had, you had a, I suppose, established your credentials as a vigorous campaigner against apartheid through your journalism. But then you eventually, after apartheid ended, you became drawn into post-apartheid politics after the establishment of the, the new democracy under Nelson Mandela. Just tell us a little bit how that happened. Yes, well, I was running a public policy consultancy because policy has always been one of the areas that I've been very fascinated by. And during the transition, I realized that shifting from an apartheid state to a democratic state would be an enormous challenge. And the transition had to be very carefully managed and new policies had to be phased in, and we had to ensure that there wasn't such a major disruption that it undermined any capacity to govern. 
not to mention the rule of law. And I mean, the ANC had been involved in a guerrilla struggle for many, many years. And the integration of that into a common society under the rule of law and trying to build a capable state was a massive, massive challenge. And so I started a public policy consultancy working actually with a local state, with local government, because that is where the rubber hits the road and that is where people's expectations were highest. So I was doing a lot of that, especially in Cape Town and really enjoying that. And then I became involved in my children's school, as one does. I became chair of the governing body of the school, and I was very involved as a parent in in a governing body, helping to do and to frame the new education legislation. And that was a very good piece of legislation that came about in the transition, the South African Schools Act. And within six months of being a mom chairing a governing body at a primary school, I became the provincial minister of education. So that was a huge trajectory. And suddenly I had to implement my policy. And that was a completely new game. I had to deliver on the theoretical work that I'd done. Just as a coincidence, that is exactly the feeling I had in 1997 when I'd been writing Tony Blair's education policy with others and suddenly says, can you come and make it happen? And it's a very daunting moment, isn't it? From there, you went on to become mayor of Cape Town and then premier of Western Cape. When you were elected for that final term, you really wanted to leave a legacy. And you thought, I'm going to do some things now that really change the lives of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people, if I can get them right. Is that how you got into your idea of the game changers? Yes, exactly. That is precisely what happened. As you say in your book, there's nothing like a deadline to concentrate the mind. And we have term limits in South Africa, so you can only do two terms, which is a good thing in Africa. And the minute I started my second term, I could see the horizon. I mean, as you say, a week is a long time in politics, but five years is a very, very short time in politics. And if you're trying to achieve something big, it's it's an, it's an it's the wink of an eye, frankly, five years. And so it's an enormous challenge. And I thought, you know, what are we going to do that is really going to make an impact? And it was difficult to find the right issues, as you say. It took us a long time to hit on them for the very simple reason that we have a cooperative governance system in South Africa and very few things are the sole purview of any sphere of government, either local government, provincial government or national government. They are all shared competencies with policy priority at national government on most areas. And so it was very difficult to find issues that we could drive game changers on. But those we chose, I thought we had enough leverage to really make a difference. And that would make a difference hugely in people's lives. And of course, number one for me was always education. Again, a legacy of my childhood. My parents left Germany with absolutely nothing. And my father always used to say to me, what you have in your head is the only thing that they can't take away from you. So, you know, you, it's, it's the only skill that's transportable, the only thing that's transportable, the only wealth that's transportable. The one thing I did want to change was to get connectivity into every school and to get e-learning into every school. And I thought that technology would help change the culture of non-performance in many, many, many schools and of non-achievement. And I also felt that for bright kids in those schools, it would give them an opportunity to achieve without necessarily have to depend, having to depend on weak teachers. If we could get the curriculum there, if we could get the timetable there, if we could get compelling lessons there, and if it could all be free. 
e-learning was one of our critical game changers. And boy, was I glad we focused on that because, of course, when COVID came, there was a huge discrepancy in most of Africa between schools that had connectivity and those that didn't. And fortunately, almost every poor school in in, uh, the Western Cape had that crucial connectivity that could be used. So that was a big success given COVID-19 turned out to be even more important than you had originally envisaged. And then you also had a programme for the youth as well beyond school, didn't you? It was one of the game changers. Quite a lot of it was focused on young people. Yes. Um, You know, I'd learned particularly because my son had gone into education and I knew from being the chair of a governing body that in good schools, school starts at half past seven in the morning often and continues to five, six, seven, eight at night. And if you stay for orchestra practice and all of those things, it goes well into the night. But in disadvantaged schools, schools out by half past one, often earlier, when kids go home for lunch and never pitch up back again. And the children lose out so much, not only on extramural education, but crucially are sucked into gangs and drugs and unsupervised, very, very bad influences in poor communities. And so having an after-schools program was a big, big focus. And it was an enormous challenge because that required a culture change as well. Very few teachers, if any, in most of our schools had any idea that their job was to stay until five o'clock in the afternoon, and many felt very resentful of that fact. Many felt that they were doing what they were, what was not in their job description, although it absolutely was. And uh, there were sports and cultural activities and extramural mathematics and English and all of those things that we introduced in a demand-driven way, but we also needed the data, which was really, really challenging in that space. As you know, and as you emphasize so rightly, you need the data, you need to check the data, and you have to go and see for yourself, because most of the officials will tell you what they think you want to hear, and they'll tell you that um, 60,000 children are attending after-school programs, and when you go and look for yourself, you can see it's a fraction of the number, and the programs aren't what they say they are, and not that people are often deliberately misleading you, but these things are like broken telephones up the chain. So actually, to get it right, and to get demand-driven programs, and to get enough of them working well enough to get a significant number of kids off the street in the afternoons was an enormous program, but it worked. So you've described with real passion and clarity the two education game changers, and then there were a series of others on crime and housing and so on. Having established your agenda, which you finally did in a cabinet retreat, which you call a lechotla, I think. In, a lechotla, in a, yes. In, it's a Sutu word, lechotla. Yeah, mm. you, you established your eight game changers. It's one thing to decide what you want to do, actually getting it done is really hard work. Can you say how you went about doing that? There are a whole lot of regulations issued by national treasury and national government that you have to comply with. And the regulatory environment is absurd and crazy. One of the points that you also make in your book is deregulate if you want to deliver. But of course, We didn't have the power to deregulate because all of these regulations came as treasury notices or many, many other things from national government. And when heads of department were assessed, they were assessed on compliance primarily rather than outcomes and rather than impact. No impacts ever measured, just compliance. And of course, the minute your heads of department are evaluated on one thing and you're trying to achieve something else, you're going to battle very, very hard to get them to focus on the things that you want them to focus on. 
And so I pushed the Auditor General very hard and I pushed the national government very hard to say we have to do impact-based auditing on key goals based on the proper data. Anyway, eventually, because I paid such close attention to these things and we had a stock take every six weeks on all the game changes and we had targets that had to be met on every delivery chain and on every trajectory all the time, and I made absolutely sure they were, and I went to see for myself. You know, slowly but surely, we won a lot of people over because they could see impact, they could see results, and not just compliance. And I think that that made a big difference. People felt that there was a purpose to what they were doing. Western Cape always had the best audits in terms of clean audits, but you pushed through that and said, that's not enough. Tell me a bit more about the delivery net, because that somehow managed to keep the whole of the government system and the public sector focused on these game changers even when you had lots of challenges like the water shortage later on in Cape Town. Just describe how the delivery unit functioned. Well, I I must say, and I just want to quickly say up front, that I had excellent officials too, many excellent officials. I don't want to make out as if the officials were entirely um, opposed to what we were doing. But it is true that if you measure certain things, people are going to manage in ways that meet their measurement targets. And when those are set by another sphere of government in a very different way that doesn't look at impact, you're going to have a challenge. And we had that challenge. And that is why we had the delivery unit. And in your book, you say, focus, focus, focus. Now, if you're the leader of a political party, as I was, and the premier at the same time, focus becomes quite hard. And you need a lot of other people to focus for you. Because you're running a political party in a very complex political environment on the one hand, and on the other hand, you want to achieve crucial targets that need, frankly, an attention to detail, a close attention to detail. And so you have to have somebody or a group of people doing all that focus for you, who will give you a document the night before that you can read through carefully. And the next day, you'll be right up to speed when you go in and do your stock take as if you've done nothing else over the past six weeks than focus on that. Yes. And actually, that the, your, your words aren't exactly the same, but it's almost exactly how Tony Blair used to refer to my work when I was working for him on delivery. He said, whatever I was doing in the world, I knew you were spending 24 hours a day just focused on delivering the domestic priorities for the British people. Can you give me an example of where you ran into a big barrier and overcame it? Is that somewhere across the game changers agenda? You know, the main barriers for me by far were were cultural barriers. The culture of compliance was an absolute massive barrier and the fear of taking risk. And um, because risk, the buck stops with the head of department and if there isn't a precedent for it or isn't if there isn't a regulation for it in government, you don't innovate. And people don't understand that if you're a creature of statute like a government is, it's quite different from the private sector where you can do what you like until you break the law. In government, you can't do anything unless the law actually says you can. And so to get people to take risks and do things that hadn't been done before and that was outside the regulatory environment was unbelievably difficult. And to change the regulatory environment, because you must remember, we were the only province in South Africa of all the nine provinces that had a democratic alliance government. All the rest were ANC. 
and the national government was ANC. And officials want to work well with other spheres of government, especially when you have an intergovernmental system like we do. And they didn't want me pushing the barriers and didn't want me having these clashes because it made life difficult. But if you've got a national failing state, you have to push the boundaries. You have to seize your powers where you can. And that makes life really uncomfortable for people. And for example, yes. the culture is in schools. I mean, certain times I'd arrive at school and we had got the connectivity right. We had delivered all the equipment. We had done absolutely everything. And I'd go into a classroom and I'd find a teacher teaching from a little scrap of paper and children with no books and no no tablets and no computers. And I'd say, but the school's got 5G. The school's got connectivity. The school's got free Wi-Fi. The school's got all the equipment. What's going on? And they say, no, 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 no. We keep that in the strong room because if we have it out here, they'll be stolen and all of that. So the stuff was neatly packed away and looked after and counted and accounted for and not stolen, but it wasn't used because people were too petrified and they had reason to be petrified because it's not unusual in those communities for gangsters and thieves and criminals to walk in, rob everybody of their cell phones and equipment and walk out again. That happens on a regular basis. So people thought, well, this is really precious equipment. We better look after it. We'll lock it up in the strong room. And we had to make strong rooms with you know, in reinforced concrete and steel barriers in the ceilings, no windows, nothing to keep them from being stolen. So it was very, very difficult to, in that climate of fear, to create the context of open and free use of resources. Those were the kinds of barriers I came up with that you can't even imagine in Britain. No, no, absolutely. Were you able, with the combination of strong rooms and hopefully the mobility of this technology, to get them used and put away and used and put away? Or, or did many teachers just give up with, with all of that? How did, how did that work? If you show me a good principal, I'll show you a good school. And that kind of leadership and innovation at all levels of the system is critical. So a game changer works when there's leadership at the top and leadership at every level. And as you said so profoundly in that chapter that you were writing on your education change, you did your, you did your delivery chain. And once you'd finished your first delivery chain, you didn't get anywhere near anybody who even taught a child. And a delivery chain in education must go right from the top of government, right down to the child in the classroom, and preferably start with a child in the classroom and work back. Yes. Now, if you don't have decent leadership at every level of that system, you're going to have a breakdown. With all these challenges, I'm pretty impressed when I look at the outcomes you got from that the, the game changer. So just on technology in schools or on the out-of-school learning, are there things you're particularly proud of when you look back on that? You know, I'm just proud when things work. Building a capable state is the great moral issue of our time. And many people who take a capable state for granted won't know what the hell you're talking about. But in Africa, we know very well what you're talking about. And, you know, we've got a local government election coming up. I mean, there are millions of people living in municipalities where sewage doesn't work anymore, where they can't rely on electricity, where the water isn't drinkable. So, you know, those basics, and you just get the basics to work, you are bloody pleased with yourself because it yes. takes an enormous effort. In that last phase when you were Premier, there was the 
really quite dreadful drought and water shortage that took a lot of your time and political energy. You know, you took charge of that. You led by example. But managing a crisis is a different order of governance, isn't it? It's a different order of governance, and it is particularly challenging in an intergovernmental system. Because in our system, the national government is responsible for bulk water, and I had to persuade the local government not to take over the national government's responsibilities without a budget. But the critical thing that we did was that we went out and communicated and communicated and communicated that we would end up at what we called day zero, where every tap would run dry. And we even demonstrated that and said what it would look like and asked people to carry around 25 liters to see how heavy it actually is to get from the communal place where you would collect water to your car, wherever it would be that you would take it. And we put the fear of day zero into the public mind. And, and you had a countdown to day zero, didn't you? you were we had a countdown to day zero because we had calculated precisely, as you say, there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mind. And so people were frightened, but people were massively cooperative. And the great credit for avoiding day zero has to go to the people of Cape Town. Yeah. We did the communicating on the risk. And obviously, as government, people get furious with you. They say, what the hell have you been doing? We say, well, we built the full flay dam. We did this. We did that. People don't want to hear you blaming another sphere of government, even if it's true. They say, you're responsible. What are you doing? And we had to say, this is a partnership. We're doing all of these things. But you have to stop using so much water. My dear, there was no bathing here during that period. There was no bathing. You did what I called um, the National Key Points Act. Right, right. <laughs> yes. From a little, bo a little bowl of water, if you were lucky. So we are the only city in the world that has ever more than halved the water consumption to meet a crisis. And fortunately, the rains came and we did not hit day zero. You've talked about 1994 when post-apartheid South Africa was uh, reinstated. It was a moment of great celebration in the country and around the world, actually. And Nelson Mandela was a, a wonderful human being who rose above so much of what we hear in politics around the world and, and became quite rightly an exemplar. Do you think that the South Africa generally, you yourself perhaps, others underestimated the difficulty of building the kind of state you've described? Yes, absolutely. Um, we completely underestimated the difficulty of doing so. And especially in a context where people didn't know what it took to actually run a competent government and people saw access to the state as a shortcut to getting rich and to getting tenders and contracts and positions and often didn't make any connection between fulfilling a functional role and the skills and capacities needed to do so. And um, that's often the case in a situation where you have many, many people wanting opportunities and an economy that can't absorb the people who want to have a pathway out of poverty. And the state then becomes the pathway and political connections become the way to do it. And then the patronage network takes over. And the core reason for the failed state in Africa is the patronage network and the patronage culture. That when you've got power, you need to benefit the people that you owe favors to and your family. 
And that is a really powerful imperative and it destroys the capable state. You used words very similar to the ones I used to use in dialogue with the chief minister of Punjab in Pakistan, where he and I came up with the phrase that the shift he was trying to bring about was the shift from the politics of patronage to the politics of performance. And that's a transition needed in many countries and sometimes in retreat in, in countries. Well, if it wasn't for Gladstone, it wouldn't have happened in Britain, you know. <laughs> no, and exactly. it takes some yeah, and it takes some really brave people to start pushing those arguments. No, that, and that's bloody unpopular for doing so, but you have to do it. Yes. Um when he first when Gladstone first put the idea of a, a civil service based on merit, Queen Victoria wrote a note back saying, How far does this idea of appointment on merit have to go? Obviously, uh, worrying about her position. Her own position, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but anyway, they, they did do it, and it was it, it was it is fundamentally important. I just wonder when you look ahead. You've had a challenging career with an amazing set of achievements, uh, and you called your autobiography "Not Without a Fight" because that's been a real struggle all the way through. When you look ahead at climate change, at the the retreat in some places of liberal values around the planet. Are you optimistic and positive about the future of humanity? Well, I think humanity keeps on keeping on, you know. And I do think that, to paraphrase a famous statement, there is nothing wrong with the world that can't be fixed by what is right with the world. And there are lots of people trying to fix things. And a lot of there's a lot of suffering, but a lot of people trying to overcome suffering. And because we are an adaptive species, because we can analyze, diagnose, and get stuck in to fix things, I really do believe that we will keep solving the problems we create. Human beings are big problem creators, but thank goodness we're also problem solvers. And that is the history of humanity. I do believe in progress. But I also believe there's an up escalator and a down escalator of history, as Francis Fukuyama says. And, you know, this whole rise of critical race theory is going to turn out, out to be a massive down escalator. This mad wokeness that has seized everybody, judging people by biological identity rather than their capabilities, and the transition from a dignity culture to a victimhood culture is a terrible downward escalator in history. And to try and turn that round in a country that is absolutely seized with this notion of um, everything can be explained by, uh, by history of oppression, and of course a lot can be explained by history of oppression, but not everything can, and if you are a permanent victim, you'll never get out of that vicious downward cycle. And to start explaining that in this kind of context is unspeakably controversial, but someone has to be saying it, and I don't mind if it's me. And the bottom line is that there are enough human beings who do say these things and who push the boundaries and who may be right sometimes and who may be wrong other times, but who get the debate going and who get stuck in and who try to solve problems that can be solved and take insoluble problems and turn them into problems that can be solved one bite at a time. So I do have hope for humanity. But we're going to go through some really rough spaces. In South Africa, the amazing thing is that a government who has fundamentally failed to do the basics right, that has destroyed infrastructure, destroyed capacity, dumped millions of people into poverty, still wins elections 
because of identity politics. I've just read a book called The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, the Indian novelist. It's his perspective on climate change, fundamentally, but but also other other challenges. Uh, And one of the things he says is that as we pursue this identity politics, ironically, we need collective solutions more than we've ever needed them before. And, And so there's a huge tension in the global political debate between these two things. Well, these tensions actually permeate everywhere because, you know, you'd think that social media and connectivity would make us see things globally. They've actually pushed people to tiny local identity-based issues that focus on personal victimhood and abandon any search for truth on a universal scale to lived experience on your little personal patch. There are lots of contradictions here. And they are very, very bad for humanity. Thank you very much for everything uh, that we've talked about. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything you want to add by way of rounding this off? You've rounded off beautifully, but I want to make sure you've had the opportunity to say everything you, you thought you would say when we began the conversation. I've enjoyed this conversation with you. I really have. I've enjoyed working with you over the years. I really loved your methodology. I'm being sent off to Nelson Mandela Bay to run an election there in which I'm going to be doing delivery chains and trajectories and everything. I'm going to teach people there your methodology. So, you know, I'm not over yet. I'm still up there fighting. It sounds like it. Um, And uh, (laughs) more power to your elbow. Thank you very much indeed for a wonderful conversation, Helen. Thank you for listening to The Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest Helen Ziller. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast. It's called Accomplishment and it's available at all good booksellers. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode and hear game changers tell their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell thanks to her and to the rest of the team.